Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. It is, in fact, false that your fourth grader is going into class and having an hour a day between their grammar and their math lesson where it's like, okay, now it's CRT time. Everybody open up your like Derek Bell textbook and we're going to learn about that today. Like that does not happen. But what does happen, and I think that liberals who uh, support this should accept it and explain it thoroughly and advocate for it if, if they think it is a good thing, which many of them do, is that those ideas are incredibly influential in the you know the professional class world that that creates public school curriculums you know in in, in the education world um, in the diversity and equity inclusion consultant world which almost every you know not I won't say almost every I'll say in the school districts that are uh, wealthy and liberal and tend to make news almost every one of those school districts has a DEI consultant uh, probably some kind of staff. It, just as it's disingenuous to say, you know, uh, it's kindergarten CRT story hour, it's also disingenuous to say that these ideas don't have any influence in schools because they surely do. You can see this if you're watching on YouTube and you will not be able to hear this or see this on the audio version. We have a special guest who's joined us for this intro-outro taping. Our new dog, Golda, is very loud and barks, so she is joining the recording. Say hello, Golda. Well, uh, happy Tuesday, everyone. Welcome back to The Realignment, as we said. Hope you really enjoyed the episode we did with Kyla Scanlon. Got a lot of really great feedback. Everything with the metaverse and Web3. Sagar, you saw a crazy amount of energy about that on Twitter. Do not worry, everyone. We're going to spend a lot more time in those spaces, going from the high-level take we did with Kyla, going to more specific ones. There's a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. But for today's episode, we are back to more of our normal beat. We are speaking with Derek Robertson. He is a contributing editor at Politico Magazine based out in Michigan, and he's done a lot of really interesting writing lately that gets at a dilemma we've noticed in the show, which is that from the start, we've said, hey, we don't do culture wars. We don't want to be a show that debates LGBTQ rights. We don't want to be a show that debates abortion. But increasingly, there's been a different set of culture issues that impact everything we're talking about here, impacted the race in Virginia, and we'd be remiss at covering. So Sagar, give us a quick little read over of what those issues are, why Derek's writing, and frankly, stuff you've done on Breaking Points relates to it, and how this all comes together in a way that does not violate our commitment to make this not a boring debate zone about trodden over issues. Yeah, look, this is fundamentally an analysis episode. This is an episode with Derek about the new style of conservatism, what I have called barstool conservatism and borrowed from Matthew Walther and others, and how it's going to rule our politics. And the essence is that the quote-unquote culture wars of today just have nothing to do with the 90s, like gay marriage, abortion, guns. Those are static issues. They just don't drive the way that the new set of voters are moving towards Republicans. The ones are today, critical race theory, political correctness, gender ideology. These things are totally and completely different and very distinct from the culture war fights of the 90s. 
And there's no real constituency and lobbying group in Washington which is yet able to speak to them. So it's a very nascent phenomenon, but it's driving the results in Virginia. It's driving the results of being anti-lockdown, being anti-Fauci. If you want to understand like what modern social conservatism is, I think this is a good episode to try and help you wrap your head around. Because if you're looking at it from just 10 years ago, it wouldn't make any sense. And here's the key thing, too. This isn't just about modern social conservatism. This is honestly about the moderate suburbs. We're still, everyone's still unpacking what happened in Virginia last week. But the key thing here is that there is increasing polarization and honest debate around education issues. And look, there's a quick note we have to say. It's frustrating we have to say this. We talk about CRT in this episode. Obviously, we are not literally alleging that people are reading Derrick Bell and exact 1970s and 1980s academic theories in schools. But as our friend and you know great friend of the show, Ross Douth, has pointed out, when people say CRT, they are referring to a broad set of ideologies and, impl- and implications that may or may not be CRT. Obviously, Robin D'Angelo is not literally a descendant of Derrick Bell. I'm sure Derrick Bell would probably find... Robin and D'Angelo very cringe, but the reality is until we find a better, more precise word than CRT, we're going to use the word and phrase CRT to describe progressivism around race issues in school. So if you have beef with us using CRT and you want to comment and write in saying we're being unfair, please give us a better, more precise term that expresses the idea. I mean this totally seriously. I'm asking this in good faith because it's not productive to get caught up in this academic debate. We know what people are basically referring to. Um, But speaking of things that people are referring to, once again, this is a book show. There's no book from Derek, at least not yet, but you can go follow the bookshop link to purchase any books, support the realignment, support independent booksellers, and of course, the many authors we have on this show. Two, you can subscribe to the realignments Substack. It is available in the show notes as well, too. Finally, three, we are supported by the Lincoln Network, not the Lincoln Project, which has covered itself in shame after the Virginia results and race. I seriously <laughs> question the sanity of anyone who, regardless of your ideological perspective, continues to employ them as your actual campaign gurus at this point. My gosh. Lastly, hope you enjoy this episode. A lot of great stuff here. See you soon. Let's get to it. Derek Robertson, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm a big fan. I appreciate it. (laughs) Good to see you, Derek. Yeah. Derek, this is a show we've needed to do for a while because from the start, we said we weren't going to discuss culture war issues. By that, we basically meant abortion and most LGBTQA rights, debates, et cetera, pick how you want to frame that, depending where you are in the audience. However, it's become increasingly clear that whether it's the CRT debate, education in schools, the broader barstool conservatives dynamic that Sagar's talked about on Breaking Points and you've written about in Politico, we have to address what we're basically going to going to today refer to as the new culture wars. So Let's just start really broadly, then we can basically frame in, how would you really delineate between those 1990s aughts culture war issues that we all grew up in and these emerging culture wars that you're spending a lot of time at Politico and are mostly and really internet driven? What's the delineating line here? 
That's a great question. It's something I think about a lot. Um, being sort of a, I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't call myself like a young person anymore. I am in my early thirties, but a younger kind of internet native person. I start to think about how, you know, I was in college or in the early, uh, late 2000s, early 2010s, around the time when Tumblr was a really big thing. And something I started to see was cross-pollination of like the, the sort of academic theory-based classes that I was taking in college and these ideas spreading like wildfire through Tumblr, um, essentially. And it created this very, it was, it was honestly like a very exciting time because these, you know, I'm making a generalization here, but in the Obama, early Obama years, every, there was kind of a hazy sort of liberal rah-rah, let's go uh, attitude in the hangover of the Bush years. Everybody was very excited about that. And there was this very strong kind of intellectual ferment, I think, in the early uh, 2010s, especially with regard to like left academic theory. A lot of the ideas that are now, you know, filtering down into uh, public school curriculums like we're having debates uh, about today. And I think that with that generation uh, of college students, um, people generally roughly our age, um, moving into public policy spaces, moving into media, moving into politics, you see those ideas just kind of sprout and take hold. And I think that honestly, when I try to, when I try to personally pinpoint a, a moment when I think th these ideas really exploded into the mainstream, this isn't scientific, but for me, it really felt like the turn was around uh, Ferguson. Yeah. Um, you, just the conversation around race becomes so drastically different than it was during the Obama years. Um, I mean, it was technically during the Obama years, but Obama was somebody who very aggressively tried to like downplay the salience of hardcore like racial analysis in, that became very much on vogue after Ferguson. And then you have uh, it's it's like a pendulum swinging back and forth, gaining momentum where these ideas take hold. Then Trump comes along and he taps into this very deep seated kind of like rage and indignation at, at the at those ideas. And each side becomes increasingly more intense. And that sort of creates the culture war foment that we have today. You said something that the audience may have missed, but is actually semi-controversial in these more mainstream circles that we all sp swim around. You specifically referred to these academic ideas filtering into public schools. Because in any conversation, especially post-Virginia, you will hear people routinely say, critical race theory is not in schools. X, Y, and Z theories are not in schools. So to what degree are you as a non-conservative, how would you assess the degree to which these, so A, what are these ideas? And B, how are, how are they not moving into institutions like public schools? Yeah, by now, I think during the, you know, the Virginia gubernatorial election that we just sat through months and months of takes on, um, some good, some bad, I, I feel like everybody, not everybody, people who are probably listening to this podcast have a pretty good idea of what critical race theory is in a literal sense, because it was pedantically explained by everybody uh, who supported Terry McAuliffe and, and was trying to sort of uh, make, reduce these ideas in a way that underplays the extent to which they are influential. And I, this is something I was, you know, when I got my own take in uh, on election night uh, this week, something that I tried to point out and that I think uh, Ross Douthat also got it very well in his column that he wrote after um, the election is that it is in fact false that, you know, 
your fourth grader is going into class and having an hour a day between their grammar and their uh, math lesson where it's like, okay, now it's CRT time. Everybody open up your like Derek Bell textbook and we're going to learn about that today. Like that does not happen. But what does happen, and I think that liberals who uh, support this should accept it and explain it thoroughly and advocate for it if, if they think it is a good thing, which many of them do, is that those ideas are incredibly influential in the world, uh, you know, the professional class world that that creates public school curriculums, you know, yes. in, in the education world, um, in the diversity and equity inclusion consultant world, which almost every, um, you know, not, I won't say almost every, I'll say in the school districts that are uh, wealthy and liberal and tend to make news, almost every one of those school districts has a DEI consultant, uh, probably some kind of staff. It, just as it's disingenuous to say, you know, uh, it's kindergarten CRT story hour, it's also disingenuous to say that these ideas don't have any influence in schools because they surely do. And they, and they take the form of, you know, just different, you see, I feel like you see a case, you know, every week where some uh, activist seizes on something particularly outrageous to maybe a right of center American that's happening in like a San Francisco school district. And it's, it's an assignment that, uh, and then we have a week-long debate over whether this is the totality of American education. Right. It's it, it's a very complicated process that gets kind of, you know, I, I understand why you guys are hesitant to address culture war issues because it's really hard to do it in a non-reductive way. It's, it's more that it's not even about, it's about that it becomes embroiled in a set of preconceived notions and is not a conversation which lends itself to nuance for most people. Because as you said, they're like, what are you talking about, Derek? There was this one time that kids in San Francisco had to sort themselves by this color of their skin. And by the way, like that is bullshit and it's terrible. But you know, like I'm not stupid and I don't think that that's happening where I grew up in like College Station, Texas. That being said, my mom is a professor of education. I know what the ideas are in terms of what are being promulgated in terms of the new generation of teachers and a lot of them have had to sit through exactly these DEI trainings. And so whenever BLM is happening nationally and the kids in school are like, hey, what's going on? What type of stuff do you think that they're going to hear? Or in the you know segments whenever they have to talk about slavery or the Civil War, it is very obvious that the discussion in the classroom today is not the same as 1992. Now, maybe it shouldn't be. As you said, that's fine. Let's have a discussion. Um, I actually think it should be taught a lot better. But I want to get to the key of something that you said, which is that, look, it's obviously real. People feel it um, in the backlash and in terms of their advocacy. How does that change our politics? Because you were one of the only people who really identified the modern conservative strain, which for a variety of reasons, nobody in D.C. really wants to acknowledge. And, and what I mean by that is barstool conservatism, in that there is a libertarian ethos and backlash against political correctness, which is at the very heart of Trumpism, which is very inconvenient for evangelicals and Catholics who see themselves as the guardians of the socially conservative movement, and also very inconvenient for the socially liberal, fiscally conservative crowd that populates Washington. How and when did you kind of get your mind around the heart of this new culture war? Like what what uh, events led you to kind of understand what politics was about today? 
and, and Derek, quick thing, define barstool conservatism. Oh, that's another good from, one. From, so yeah, define barstool conservatism and then get to Sagar's question there. Yeah, I'll do that first. So I wrote a piece back in June um, called How Republicans Became the Barstool Party on Politico Magazine. And basically my premise was that there is an attitudinal strain that is kind of at the vanguard of Republican politics today that is, um, it's, I, I hesitate almost to even describe it as reactionary because that carries its own set of connotations, but it is literally a reaction to yeah, changing right. social norms. Right. Um, everything that we're talking about right now with regard to like mainstream institutional, you know, li- sort of liberal institutions becoming far more progressive, it is a reaction to that. Um, people become, and, and you know, m- most of them, there's a large strain of white reaction here, but not everybody who would describe themselves as a barstool conservative is white, to be sure. Um, and I think there are plenty of examples of these kind of politics resonating with non-white people that Democrats would do well to take uh, notice of. But um, people simply, there's something deep, there's a deep strain of kind of psych, <laughs> I'll call it like psychological libertarianism in American culture. Uh, people simply don't like being told how to think. And they really don't like being told that they are racist for the way that they think. Um, Even, you know, if in some cases it's, you know, they are trafficking in racial uh, grievance or, um, you know, saying something just outright offensive. Um, So that reaction is the core of what the the barstool conservative is you know the barstool conservative is not an evangelical is is not a catholic uh they're not libertarian either there's a key thing there yeah there no (laughs) there i don't think many of the barstool conservatives are like reading uh murray rothbard (laughs) 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 um uh sorry that was that was petty um yeah. Matthew Walter, who's a writer I really admire, a fellow Michigander who writes for, um, he, he wrote in the American Conservative, a piece that preceded mine and sort of started, you know, to turn to your question, Sagar, this started turning the wheels on, on my thinking about how the impact that barstool conservatism has on the Republican Party. You know, he is a very, cle- he is a socially conservative Catholic, and he's a very clear-eyed observer of um, what's happening in conservative politics. And he basically wrote this essay that was saying, you know, Donald Trump came along and he uh, made many, many political sops to evangelicals and social conservatives because it was electorally advantageous to him. But he is not one of them. He will never be one of them. And his base is not really those voters. His, exactly. his base is people sort of a broad coalition of people who don't like uh, the liberal liberal consensus. Um, his entire political project is a reaction to the liberal consensus. And that's why he was so easily co-opted as president by just kind of standard Republican politics, because you can't really legislate reaction to the liberal consensus. Mm-hmm. Although there are lots of people doing interesting things to sort of work through that space, some of whom you've had on this podcast. Um, ultimately, you know, and I think I think Trump is a big part of it. You know, people get tired of talking about Trump and for good reason, but he was a perfect conduit for this reaction to kind of an ascendant liberal ideology and culture. Could you speak to something Sagar and I discussed on Breaking Points? I do not understand why the center left Terry McAuliffe crew has such a hard time addressing the broader CRT conservative critique. I don't understand why the word white supremacy has to come in. I don't understand why 
some weird, random, hyper-conservative parent saying that Toni Morrison is scary. That obviously happens. That's always happened. We all remember when Harry Potter was banned from schools in certain southern states. This has always happened. I don't get why Democrats can't, and I'd love to hear what your theory is to why this is such an issue. Why can't Democrats just say, hey, we get it. There are some crazy things happening right now that none of us actually believe in. We think America has a complicated history of race. We're going to teach that history, but do not worry. We will never endorse any ideas that are actually dangerous. Like That's a very straightforward answer. It's directionally true for how they actually feel. It's so fascinating. And I wonder how this is for you. Whenever we talk to a lot of center-left people on the podcast, like off the record, they'd be like, oh yeah, like Robin DiAngelo is crazy. Whoa, Ibram Kendi, I definitely wouldn't put him in charge of the Department of Education. They will literally say this. So I don't understand when it comes to public performance, why it is just not so difficult to give a pretty center left, oh yeah, we get why parents are scared of these crazy things. Don't worry, we're not doing those things. But we also, like you, don't want to have racist children. So I, I just deal with my frustration. This is a therapy session, effectively. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a center-left liberal myself, this is something that I have, I think I, I may have at one point literally talked about in therapy. So uh, yes, let, let's do that. Um, <laughs> it's getting a little soft boy here. We need to be careful. We'll get yeah. to that in a bit there, too. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's another episode. Uh, another one of my Politico Mag pieces I'll direct people too. Um, So to answer your question, I will say this with the caveat that like, I am a sort of more of a cultural critic and observer. I haven't reported on this. I know there are lots of people who are embedded in this world who I'm friends with and, you know, have probably have more like fact-based, you know, uh, informational takes on this that are very interesting and they're out there. I would, if I had to venture a guess just based on, you know, living in the space, uh, being in, you know, liberal world, um, I think that it's a combination of two things. One of those things is that um, the donor and activist class is far, 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 far more liberal and progressive than the average actual like liberal voter, the median democratic voter, let's say. And you don't want those people mad at you um because they're they're powerful and influential in politics just as you know just as social conservatives and evangelicals are are powerful uh you know in sort of backroom republican politics um the uber progressive donor and activist groups are very powerful in democratic politics it's just reality um you have to they do uh Liberty University, that crew is is far to the right of American politics, yet they have yes. significant sway in the Republican Party. These people are far to the left of uh, the Democratic Party in American politics, and they have serious sway in the Democratic Party, because that's just how politics works. So I think that's a huge part of it. Um, another, I think another part of it is honestly that it is a, it is still kind of like a Trump hangover thing. Um, this is something I saw you I mentioned McAuliffe at the beginning of this, you know, McAuliffe, McAuliffe is not like Cory Bush. Like he's a boring, like liberal white guy who's been literal Clinton Democrat. Yeah. Literally a financier. That was his his entire career was raising money from rich people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's like, he's like blue. He's like a donkey blue shirt, Mitt Romney, basically like, uh, and yet he it's impossible for him to let this go because I think that some uh, probably some people in like the Democratic consulting class mislearned the lessons of the Trump era where they think that you can paint somebody like Glenn Youngkin as like Trump, which is just like 
It's untrue. It's also insulting to voters intelligence. Like clearly there are many people in, in Virginia who were Biden Youngkin voters and like they weren't fooled by this message, but it's like Trump's style was so singular that he was able to unite this very likely unlikely coalition that res- that gave you the 2018 blue wave and that, you know, turned Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin blue in 2020. And Trump's sweet generis, like every, that's the one thing we can all agree on. And I think that uh, Democrats have this hangover where, you know, people will see the Republican brand and think Glenn Youngkin is a scary racist, but people aren't that simple. Like people are, you know, voters can be weird and unpredictable, but they're like a little more sophisticated than I think, uh, than I think a a lot of people are are aware of or or would like to believe. Yeah. You know, and it's very true. I think you should just trust people and, you know, you can make a case. It is funny. Um, I heard some retconning in Virginia. They're like, why didn't Terry McAuliffe criticize Glenn Youngkin for being Carlisle Group CEO? And it was because he was also an investor in the Carlisle yeah. Group. <laughs> just incredible. Right. In Another terms thing, of, yeah, go ahead. I, w- I was just going to say, Glenn Youngkin was also like advocating for teachers to get a pay raise. Like, yeah, this, yeah, this, right. These are not uh, stock Republican or reactionary politics. I mean, Glenn Youngkin is conservative. And yes, he, he played up the uh real anxieties that that parents had some of which were rooted in discomfort with talking about race but it's it's nowhere near uh, a trump campaign it's just i like i said before i i will say it again it's, i think it is insulting to voters intelligence to pretend that it's something other than what it is yeah so where do you think it goes from here derek because it's interesting in terms of the republican side and also teacher pay that was something that was i think it was paved by desantis i did an entire monologue right before the pandemic back in february desantis was going on this whole tear about creating the best the highest you know salary for teachers in the entire country it was one of the single most popular things that he did in the state of florida along with like everglades protection so Mm -hmm. you know pre-pandemic there was like a whole other there was a lot of stuff going on there and i've been thinking recently that there's a reversion to the mean happening here and so in the future of our politics kind of what do you see the 2022 election here to be about because the republicans have learned something very simple all we have to do is be directionally more to the center of the median american voter than the democrats are on critical race theory lockdowns closing schools the economy inflation all of these things and we're just gonna win even though like look let's be honest like not a single one of those things is going to be solved under a Republican House or even under a president, as we saw under Donald J. Trump as president. And yet we still have not seen like a liberal consensus, as Marshall is saying, as, hey, like this was real. I mean, even if you saw Biden um, in his response to the Virginia results, Derek, he was like, oh, well, you know, basically insinuated if we passed the bill, it might have helped. Like, look, honestly, they could have given everybody like six thousand dollars and Virginia probably still would have gone red. And I just don't think that they've been able to process what exactly has happened here. So where do you think that this will play out both in 2022, but also in 2024? And then for the 2024 one, um, include a Trump version and then a non-Trump version. Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, This is something I've thought about a lot because it almost, I think what you said about the, it was very, what you said about uh, sending out more checks was very trenchant because 
something my Politico magazine colleague, Michael Grunwald, said on Twitter after the Virginia election, which I thought was very unfortunate, but very true, which is that there's not a lot of evidence from recent elections that uh, concrete policy changes have a lot of effect on how voters yeah. vote. Um, voters vote on their gut feeling. They vote on their cultural analysis, which like or gas prices. Which yeah. Guys, the president yeah. has got nothing to do with gas. I don't know how many times I have to say it. Right. I, th- I think, I think literally every time I've seen like a let's go Brandon post in the wild, it had something to do with gas prices. Like yeah, right. pe- people, people uh, see the world around them and they kind of react with their gut and you know, well, as a, as a cultural critic, uh, I guess that means I'll never be out of work, which kind of like <laughs> makes me feel morally conflicted. Incentives. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think that what you're going to see. So your first part of the question was about Democrats in yes. 22 and then 24 with Trump and non-Trump. Let's start, let's start with 22. Um, I think that the worst is yet to come for Democrats. Um, That's just my pundits take. And the reason that I think that is because I think that this, you know, yes, people overmap from one race, you know, there are thermostatic trends in elections, but I, I think Pandora's box has kind of been opened. And I, I think a lot of liberals who are uncomfortable with tying their party entirely to like, basically like, DEI consultant worldview are going to have their concerns taken more seriously. And that's going to set off like Dems in disarray times 5,000 because (laughs) you just, just thinking about it from like a cultural and rhetorical Avenue, once you've staked your entire like political philosophy on the idea that anyone who opposes this ideology is like a crypto racist, like you can't back off that. Like it's, it's hard to Mott and Bailey that idea um, because it is so like, uh, it's, it, it's so black and white. You've, you've kind of like, you, you don't have a lot of moves left after you've, you've tied your whole political argument to that as Terry McAuliffe did in Virginia. Yeah. Um, and I think there's going to be a huge blow up on that. And I think that, you know, maybe cooler heads will prevail and the economy will recover and you'll have Democrats say like, let's deal with this after 22 and let's just hold hands now and like try to run on the economy. But I think that's going to be a really tough sell. I'm, you know, I, I read the wall street journal like a lot, but I, I will not even dare to venture to guess how the economy is going to go or make a prediction about that here. I just think it's going to be a tough sell because like we were talking about, um, culture war stuff moves voters. Like they, they, they react to the world around them in 2024. I think uh, I have a pretty, I probably have like a little bit more of a, um, simple, view on this than a lot of other like liberal critics do. Um, I think that if Trump runs, I think he will win the nomination. And I think that he is such a singular figure that it will be not easy, but eminently possible to beat him again. I mean, you run the, if you have a fairly stable economy and you run the 20 campaign again you say like do you guys really want to go back to this like remember 2018 when everything was like this do you want that again i think that's like a tough cultural sell for a lot of people and i think that gives you a good chance of it gives you a good chance of putting back together that coalition that elected biden as frayed as it might be right now and it is frayed virginia is a perfect example of that um without without trump i think it's a lot easier for and you know the people my my friends on the right who are you know 
like farther to the right of say like a Ross Douthat who I cited earlier will say, you know, you're just saying this because you're a liberal and this is you're uh, manifesting the the dream you want to see in the world or whatever. But I think that a, I think that a less uh, actively inflammatory Republican than Trump could easily win along those lines that you described, Sagar, making that argument yeah. that you made. Um, and the real question is whether that uh, candidate can win a primary, but that's a question for uh, somebody who, who knows the internal Republican Party politics a lot better than I do. Something I'm fascinated by is how different groups are responding to the Virginia dynamics I just described. So Sagar and I just did breaking points on Thursday, the 4th, obviously. And something you saw from a lot of progressive Dems is they tried to make Virginia all about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And if we passed this big bill, it would have made a huge difference. But if you actually take a step back and think about it, Sagar, we made this point. It's a 10-year spending bill. So it's not as if mm-hmm. passing the bill, I don't see any world where you got the most perfect progressive version of this bill ever. It would have had any actual impact on the election itself. Therefore, the dynamics of that race probably didn't come down to a specific economic progressive package. How do you see the progressive squad responding to these DEI dynamics? Because what's so fascinating about progressives, no, not even progressives, like the the democratic socialist left is half of them are radical Marxists who hate identity politics. But the other half, and I'd probably put AOC in this category, she's definitely woke, but she puts the economic stuff in front of her, Bernie's operationally in the same category, they seem to be in a place where they don't really know what to do in this scenario. If you're if you're Bhaskar Sunkara, you say, of course the crazy, radical, woke stuff didn't work. Economics is primacy. Right. We don't believe that to be the fact here. But if you're AOC and Bernie, how do you respond to what just happened? Also in New Jersey too. It's this isn't just a specifically right. Virginia dynamic. Yeah, I think progressives are kind of like stuck in the torture chamber with this because, you know, especially, you know, like the Bhaskaris and Karas of the world. And I, you know, I, I find this writing really enjoyable and read it quite frequently. But like in terms of mass American politics, you can't divorce. And I, I like hate when people use this term, but like I will just use it as shorthand right now. But you, you can't divorce like, quote, wokeism from like the broader progressive economic project yes. um, because it, they appeal to the same, and this is this is where I'm very sympathetic to both of these things. Um, to the average person who's not, you know, like a s- super hardcore, like an ideological person or a politics nerd who's reading Jacobin or who's like <laughs> who has like a hammer and sickle in their Twitter handle or whatever. Like these, the average, what else? I'll call them the normie progressive because I I know many of these people. Um, the the normie progressive reacts the same way to arguments for economic fairness that they do to like wokeism um there what, be- what do you mean by that can you explain that i because i think they both appeal to just kind of these fundamentally you know just as i was talking about how the barstool republican uh, kind of represents this inchoate american desire to not be told what to do um like the constituent parts of like the aoc bernie wing of the democratic party both appeal to this other very strong American ideal as represented probably best by the new deal era that um, this should be a fairer country. It should be a fairer country for everybody. And that there are 
groups in this country who have been historically marginalized and that who require, they require special amelioration um, through policy or, you know, through the way we think or through the way we order our institutions. And I, I think that if you are the kind of person who like reads Jacobin, it's really easy to split hairs and say like identity politics is toxic and we need to jettison it from our movement, but you're going to have a really hard time getting a lot of people uh, as not maybe a lot, but like as many people on board with your project. Um, if you do that, I don't and think you're already, and you're already, and to make the point, and you're already struggling to get people yeah. on board your project too. That's exactly. the other dynamic here too. <laughs> right. They need, they need those people. They don't have a movement with without that ideology. I don't think, um, you know, you saw the past five years in progressive politics, like there's been this mo- repeated mantra that, if you just add, if you're just as bold as possible and you just don't compromise and you advocate for Medicare for all and not just economic you know, policies, but like, uh, you know, prison, prison abolition or like mm-hmm. the uh, Israeli boycott or something like that, that you, you will inspire people with your radicalism, people to come out of the forest and like join you like Lord of the Rings or something. And like they do that and those people don't come. You have to work with like the electorate and the voters that you have. And I think that to build, you know, you don't get the, the Bernie Sanders movement to, to the size that it is if it's just a kind of like you know, if you tone, it's like, it's like that Twitter joke about turning the big dial that says like (laughs) the Twitter thing is about racism. This is not about racism, Mm -hmm. but it's like, uh, if you turn down the economic style and turn up like the social justice politics style, you get the Elizabeth Warren campaign, which went nowhere. Um, and if you turn down the, uh, social justice style and turn up the economic style, nobody's really done that. And I don't think that in the democratic party, that's really a viable project as the democratic party, as it's constituted today, at least. Yeah, no, that's, it's a really interesting and important point. I made it many times during the 2020 campaign. And, uh, I think Bernie's failure and then ultimate, you know, kind of acquiescence to a lot of this just really proved that point. And same in terms of the actual salience of what a lot of these progressives thought that they had in terms of power in the democratic party, and it turns out that they're like probably the weakest constituent link within yeah. the entire thing. Something they really haven't grappled with, right? Yeah, I mean, when it was uh, my another, I keep, I feel like a chill right now. I keep shouting out my my Politico uh, pals, but <laughs> uh, my colleague Ruari Arietta Kenna wrote a piece today, that published today about the Sunrise Movement. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a wither the Sunrise Movement. Uh, what's you know what role do they have in this world where Joe Manchin can just kind of like put his hand out and keep them at bay like Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. Yeah. Uh, and Manchin says in it. And who, uh, and who are they? And who is this? We've, we haven't, we actually haven't talked about the Sunrise Movement before. Who are they? The Sunrise Movement are kind of like a great example of what we're talking about. Um, they are a, an environmental activist nonprofit or organizing group. They're uh, super youth oriented. They started out as like this really hardcore, uncompromising uh, group that advocated for much stronger policies to fight climate change. And they experienced the mission creep that many of these such progressive groups have, where they eventually grew to encompass like the Israel Palestine conflict and prison abolition and all these other things. Matt Iglesias wrote a, a great piece about this um, in his newsletter earlier this year, if I remember correctly. And they find themselves in a position now where Joe Manchin is quoted in this piece as responding to their demands for the current infrastructure bill by just saying, elect more liberals. 
And he's right. Like that's, that's you, like you're in a really tricky position if you um, just hand wave, if, if your demands can be hand waved away by one Senator uh, who controls the fate of the, the balance of power. And that brings us back to our, our core point that we're talking about here, which is that I don't think it's possible in a polarized, the, with a, in a country with the level of polarization that we have and the kind of weird idiosyncratic institutions that we have to elect more liberals without being more honest and more self-reflective about the uh, position Democrats find themselves in culturally. You know, I want to speak to something that came to mind. It's a theme I've been increasingly interested based on just what you're saying, which is as a result of, let's just say, center-left progressive people obviously controlling, this isn't a conspiracy theory, but just controlling entertainment cultural inputs, mm-hmm. government at the, you know, in the small G sense, the technology industry, et cetera, you've really seen the muscles of just politics, like small P politics, just decline. So, and, and you see this, you see this across the folks who we're talking about here. It's, it's, it's funny. We, uh, a lot of people are tweeting things like, progressives, you're super ticked off that the spending bill isn't as big as you want it to be. This is a terrible bill. Walk. Let the bill fail. And I'm like, hey, you realize that Kirsten Sinema would probably like that if it <laughs> happened. Joe Manchin would probably like that if it happened. Like the, on a, at a political level, you you can't offer them anything. Like they, they, they support something happening, but they don't care that much. If if you're seeing the 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 move to go straight to white supremacy without actually making a plan, it's it's actually incredible. You're seeing CNN panels where they're talking about white supremacy. They're saying we need to talk more about January sixth, not to underplay January sixth, but at a pure political level. These plans obviously aren't going to end anywhere productive unless you just have Trump. Because like you said, Trump, for a great many voters, is just so odious that you basically don't have to worry. Trump will give you the ammunition you need to get you yeah. need to really handle here. So my question is, how do you see the rising stars, younger folks in the Democratic Party just trying to think through these dynamics, because I don't think they have anything to say to barstool conservatives. I don't think they have anything to say to any of these groups unless Trump is making the case for them with his various degrees of terribleness. I I think that's correct. Um, I'm, you know, honestly, I'm kind of hard up to think of an example of this. Hon- honestly, and people will probably like reflexively be surprised, maybe be surprised that this is my answer. But I think somebody who is kind of trying this and and he'll get pulled in a million different directions and we'll see how it goes. But I almost think that Pete Buttigieg is trying to do this a little bit. Yeah, no. Um, he presents, I think he, and like, you know, I'm not saying this in a capacity as a reporter, like don't, nobody like clip this. Uh, <laughs> nobody <laughs> clip this. A, mil, a million, a million. Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't have said it. You should have just opened. said it. Yeah. I, I'm going to get clipped on a certain uh, conservative right. podcast. Uh, right. <laughs> um, uh but I think that you see him kind of subtly maneuvering as a foil to Kamala Harris, as somebody who is a little bit more relatable to the quote unquote average American. And I, it's, I think it's part, honestly, people will say there's, there's a racial dynamic here that is very complicated. Uh, but I'll, honestly, I think a lot of it, and this is because I had just spent a, a year of my life and my career there. I think a lot of this has to do with his being from Indiana 
like Pete Buttigieg is the child of academics and grew up in like an incredibly cosseted and intellectual environment. But he also like grew up in Indiana and like Indiana is a really particular kind of place. Um, it's a state that votes reliably red that had a Democratic senator well into the Trump era. It's 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 kind of like a people there don't really like they're not as activated by hardcore culture war politics, either from the right or from the left as, you know, like a, a Donald Trump or like Kamala Harris would run on in, in their own individual ways. And I think he's somebody who kind of understands that and tries to thread the needle in saying, Hey, I'm a progressive. I believe in progressive causes. I think we should have a fairer country, but I'm not going to press so hard it's the it's the obama playbook like people act like there's some great mystery as to how you can do this as a democrat the most popular democratic president well, i don't know maybe clinton was pretty popular people tend to forget that but a very popular democratic president ran, and, and, yeah but he did the same thing yeah yeah right well and the quick thing on this is clinton did not have the negative headwinds that obama did so like obama yeah. obama's performing in a different political context than clinton was right yeah, yeah. totally. That's completely accurate. They both ran a really similar playbook. Um, and I think that if it, I, I jokingly tweeted out the other day, like Al Gore's uh, campaign announcement speech from 1999. I was like, hey, if there's any Democrat disappointed after this race, like here, this is free for you to use and adapt. <laughs> like it's yeah. pretty. Um, it's from was, Tennessee. Like, yeah, right. It was, I tell people this all the time. I'm like, you guys know the Democrats had a 60 seat majority in like a decade ago. Yes. Arkansas, Tennessee, yeah. there were a lot of Dems. Yeah. Well, quick thing, like, and this is where yeah. it's it complicated. A lot of the people who were kind of subtweeting, not we're, we're tweeting right. at them at this point. They do not want that. The, they do right. not want exactly. the version of the Democratic Party. Yeah. That was 60 something votes. The same people yeah. who are just like everything's corrupt. The DNC is stealing everything. Let's just say you would be incredibly disappointed in a Democratic Party that had a 60 seat Senate right. majority. If you, because like, that's what's so funny. This is why these people don't know how to handle Joe Manchin. They mm -hmm. don't understand that real talk. Like, I hate when people are like, oh, Joe Manchin's just bought off. I'm like, Joe Manchin would perform probably the same exact moves he's making, plus or minus one, to remain elected in the state of West Virginia. Like, which is, what's the Occam's race here? Which is more likely right. a, a hyper conservative, super red state elects a Democrat. It's probably because the Democrat, aside from his frankly biographical attachment to the Democratic Party, is going to mostly be a moderate Republican. This is just, right. this is politics. This isn't a conspiracy. It's obviously true. And frankly, if you're a Democrat, you should be grateful he caucuses with you so that you actually could contain a Senate majority. Yeah, it's funny. I'm thinking it's like, you want to know what a 60 seats looks like? Blanche Lincoln. Nobody yeah. talks about Blanche Lincoln. Or uh, who's that governor in Alabama, the pro-life one? John Bell Edwards, right? Yeah. It's like, Louisiana, a, yeah. yeah, it's Louisiana. Like, yeah. he's a, there's a Democratic governor. He actually won re-election in a culture war referendum. Oh, but he's just pro-life. Like, right. you know, like, that's the truth. A Democratic uh, Derek, governor won a race in Kentucky uh, just, you know, within the past yeah. couple of years. That's so, exactly sorry. right. We covered that a lot on Rising. And uh, yeah, it was the same. It was completely uh, overlooked by a lot of people in the press. And actually, that one was a little bit more of a populist one, if I recall. That was on like Medicare yep. expansion and stuff like that. But anyway, fascinating political wins. Uh, Marshall's computer is dying. So last question here, uh, Derek, which is that in terms of you are a very good cultural critic, a good cultural observer, what do you see the next backlash 
as manifesting in politics, or are we just going to be living in the current one that we're already saying? That's a really good question. Um, I maybe this is just kind of like the the narcissism of you know being within center left liberal world, but I do kind of see. Let me think about this for a second, because I I, I do think that the trends at play in. Uh, the Virginia governor's race that we just saw are kind of, I think that's just kind of starting. And I think Republicans yeah. are going to be campaigning on that for the next you know, however many years until, oh, until years Democrats ago. change their stripes. In addition to that, I think that you will start to see a little bit more oxygen and maybe, you know, maybe I'm just projecting here a little more oxygen for people who are not as kind of, um, Pharisee-like about cultural politics within the Democratic Party, um, kind of standing up and stretching a little bit more. Um, I I don't know in terms of a popular backlash what form that will take because this is, you know, there's. I was just listening to uh, Barry Weiss's interview with Robbie or Robbie, excuse me, I don't know why I said that. Rob Anderson, where he was talking about the idea of of luxury beliefs and and cultural backlash, where you know. I think, I think it was Barry who was talking about how she had a friend who says that this is actually very, these trends are somewhat predictable. And this idea appeals to me as a cultural critic. It's what he thinks about pop culture a lot, where uh, what's cool now is not going to be cool in four years, because yes. what's cool is based on what a vast majority of people believe. Um, so I do kind of I, I wonder if there will be some kind of cultural backlash to the like overweening um, like uber progressive domination of like cultural output and its representations. And I don't think that takes necessarily takes the form of Trumpism either. I think that, you know, I think you might see something more like I, I wrote in like the cultural climate of like the late 90s and early 2000s, which was like toxic and weird in a lot of different ways, but also had a lot of um a, a lot of, I don't think like South Park uh, exists. Like right. if Matt Stone and Trey Parker are, are 25 years younger than they are, it just doesn't exist. Um, and I, I think you might start to see people pushing for more of a cultural climate like that. I think you're 100% right. You know, it's fascinating. I, I kind of look for the same stuff. I've recently gotten really into lifting weights. Um, hmm. And what I really discovered is bro lift culture is become super right wing. And I'm like, how, what happened? Like yeah. all of a sudden, all my favorite guys who are really into lifting weights are like anti-vaccine mandate. They're like, bros, we got to take care of our health. They're like, bros, they're like, stay away from all this like nonsense out in the politics, like get out in the sun. It's just, it's very culturally um, counter. And yet at the same time, Derek, these people are not pro-life. They like right. don't give a shit about gay marriage. They probably all smoke weed or yep. they're like fine with smoking weed. But then they're like posting memes about Dr. Fauci. Right. And I'm like, something's happening here, right? Like, yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what that is. But personally, I would bet on that. And I do think Barstool conservatism is probably the best encapsulation of all of that. So anyways, man, really appreciate you joining us. You're going to have to come back. We'll do a much longer episode, too, after the next election. One of my personal favorite, you know, authors in the mainstream media. So thank you very much for joining us, man. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Sagar. Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Reminder, Substack, subscription, 
bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.